What is up, freaks? It's your boy Marty Bent here. Touchdown in Austin, Texas. With no furniture. Luckily, my house has a nice outdoor screened-in porch. I'm here in the tool shed. Got my computer set up, standing up. The show must go on. You freaks don't care if my furniture hasn't arrived. You don't care if I don't have a desk. Luckily... I packed my computer shit in the car that I drove down here. So it's not in the moving truck that's already four days late. Anyway, enough about me. You're not here to, to listen to me. You're here to listen to the guests that I speak with. And today's guest is a very special one. Uh, one of which uh, a few of you freaks have tagged in in replies to some of my tweets about the supply chain, inflation, and, and how, just how borked it is. His name's Ross Kennedy. He goes by Man Integrated man underscore integrated on <clears throat> Twitter and he called a lot of the supply chain fuckery that we've we've seen unfold over the last year and a half early last year he, he wrote a bunch of threads explaining how supply chains were probably going to uh, be a bit perturbed by the the top-down control of the global economy so we jump into that we talk a lot about Bitcoin and natural rights uh, towards the end of the show. It was a really good episode. It got cut off at the end again. Uh, I'm making this makeshift desk here in my, my tool shed in Austin, Texas. And I didn't realize that my laptop last night was not plugged in and being charged throughout throughout the interview. Uh, and right at the very end, luckily it was at the very end when we were we were shilling uh, Ross's wares, his, his sub stack, that, that it cut off abruptly. Luckily the, the audio is saved um, and we will link to to his substack in the show notes i thought it was an incredible conversation take it easy on the nft and crypto talk all right all right we're recording new corners okay this rip was brought to you by our good friends at the mother fucking cash up cash up so you stack sets send sets receive sets and sell sets if you so please we're saying sets 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 because sats are the standards, 100 million sats and one whole Bitcoin. You don't have to buy a whole Bitcoin. You don't have to buy a fraction of a Bitcoin. You can stack whole sats instead. And you better better start stacking ASAP. They're getting more expensive by the minute here. We got a nice little pamp here today, October 6th, Wednesday, October 6th. Uh, if you haven't downloaded the Cash App yet, make sure you do. Again, they make it very easy to stack sats. You can DCA, set it and forget it. They have their boost program. Cash App can be your bank account. They're offering account numbers, routing numbers. They're trying to do the damn thing. Use the code StackingSats when you download the Cash App. Uh, you're going to get $10. $10 is going to go to our good friends at Owls Lacrosse. That's Owls Lacrosse. Owls Lacrosse. This rip was also brought to you by our very good friends at Unchained Capital. Unchained is here to provide you freaks with a collaborative custody model to make sure that you eliminate single points of failure in your Bitcoin custody setups, single points of failure can exist in the, the form of third-party custodians uh, that just hold your Bitcoin. You don't really own Bitcoin at that point. You own a claim on Bitcoin. Uh, that's a very, very centralized risk. Uh, another single point of failure is single SIG wallets, which uh, human error can step in, right? If you don't back up your seed phrase, you don't protect that backup, you lose your hardware wallet, and you lose that seed phrase and you don't remember it, you're shit out of luck single point of failure so unchained is here with their their vault product which is a two or three multi-sig product where you hold two keys unchained holds one 
you can always move your UTXOs in and out of your Volt as easily and quickly as possible. Uh, you have full control there. But if you're ever in a pinch, Unchained is there to be that second in the two or three signature scheme. They have a special product, the concierge onboarding product for you freaks. If any of you are out there with these single points of failure, like, oh, I'd love to do this, but I'm a little nervous. I know how to do it by myself. Unchained is here for you. They're going to have a white glove concierge service. We're going to walk you through the whole process. They're going to have multiple video conference calls with you to get you comfortable with multi-sig, get you comfortable with their Volt products specifically. They're going to send you a couple hardware wallets. They're going to get you comfortable creating private public key pairs backing those seed phrases up that that uh, are accompanied by, with those private publicly uh, your seed phrase is your representation of your private key long story short you're gonna be comfortable with creating and securing that and then you're going to set up your two or three multi-sig volts and at the end of the day with this special product uh this package they're going to dump a thousand cuck bucks worth of sats into your multi-sig volt uh if you tell them the tftc sent you you're going to get fifty dollars off this whole package um, so do that. Go check out Unchained beyond the Volt product. They have incredible content in other products, including their loan product. And they're really trying to leverage Bitcoin's native properties to bring custody to the masses the, the correct way. All right. So go check them out. They got a new website as well. Unchained.com. You can check out everything they've got going on. Uh, again, tell them if you're going to do the concierge service, tell them TFTC sent, you're going to get $50 off. This rip was also brought to you by our good friends at Brains. Brains. Brains is the company behind Slushpool, the oldest running mining pool in the world, founded in 2010 with over 1.25 million Bitcoin mined in its lifetime. Bitcoin's mined, excuse me. They've been operating Slushpool since 2013 and are always working with improvements such as the big upgrades that happened earlier this summer, which include ultra-flexible payouts that can be either time-based or threshold-based mining reward splitting for automatically distributing rewards to multiple wallets, and of course, Dark Theme. Brains is a Bitcoiner company too through and through, excuse me, and they're working on some of the most unique and cutting-edge projects in the mining industry, including Brains OS Plus, auto-tuning firmware, and the Stratum V2 mining protocol. And they're hiring. They're hiring, freaks. If you're a Rust developer, system programmer, or if you have experience with embedded devices, there may be a place for you to join the team at Brains. Check out Brains, B-R-A-I-I-N-S dot com slash careers to see open options and submit an application. Uh, when what's minor, it's coming. They've got it working in the, the Brains office. They've also got Amminer X19 generation stuff working in private testing. So it's out there in the hands of some some freaks who are running it on their on their machines. There's no ETA yet on the public release. Currently supported devices for the Brains OS Plus firmware, which again, if you forgot, allows you to stack more sats with your hash. They, they make sure that your ASICs are running as efficiently as possible. So you're getting as many hashes and therefore more sats. Currently supported devices are the Antminer S9, S9i, S9j, as well as the S17, S17 Plus, S17 Pro, T17, T17 Plus, and the ones that were added earlier this year, the S17e and the T17e. PSA, Brains OS Plus is compatible with any mining pool. You don't need to mine with Slush Pool if you're using the firmware. But if you do use the firmware and you point your hash at Slush Pool, you're going to get 0% pool fees. Pretty nice vig there. If you want to get unique insights on the Bitcoin mining industry, along with the updates on Brains OS Plus, Stratum V2, and other Brains projects, check out the Brains blog at Brains. Again, that's B-R-A-I-I-N-S.com slash blog. And follow the lesser known at Brains underscore systems Twitter account, where the team is posting deep dive threads on various mining topics. Last but not least, this rip was brought to you by our good friends at Compass Mining. Compass Mining is out here. Out cha. Trying to get more individuals into 
the mining game. They want more individuals owning hash. The more individual hash rate ownership we have across the world, the better distributed the mining layer of the Bitcoin network is. And the way Compass do, does this, they allow customers to go to compassmining.io, C-O-M-P-A-S-S-M-I-N-I-N-G.io. They allow it. They, they're acquiring ASICs for you freaks and selling them to you freaks. You pick your model that you want. You pay Compass. Uh, and then you can either plug your, your ASIC in at a partner uh, hosting facility that they have. They're lining up hosting facility partnerships with competitive electricity costs. So uh, if your electricity at home or your, uh, your electrical uh, infrastructure at home is not set up for these miners or maybe it's too expensive, uh, they have these hosting partnerships. However, if you do want to mine at home, they have their at-home mining packages as well, as well where you can buy the ASIC, have them sent to you, and you can plug them in yourself. Uh, they're offering support for that as well, so they'll, they'll have a support team that'll that'll have calls with you, tell you how to set everything up, how to point your hash at a mining pool, how to get those mining pool sats to a wallet of your choice, and then uh, if you need to do any electrical engineering fixes for your particular miner, they'll they'll be walking you through that as well. So go check all of this out at compassmining.io, and I believe they just began accepting a credit card orders, so you can speculative attack via the mining layer. So. Enjoy this episode. Thank you for bearing with me, freaks. Love all y'all. You've had a dynamic where money's become freer than free. If you talk about a Fed just gone nuts, all, all the central banks going nuts. So it's all acting like safe haven. I believe that in a world where central bankers are tripping over themselves to devalue their currency, Bitcoin wins. In the world of fiat currencies, Bitcoin is the victor. I mean, that's part of the bull case for Bitcoin. If you're not paying attention, you probably should be. What is up, freaks? Welcome back to Tales from the Crypt. I'm sitting down with Ross Kennedy. We're going to get into a lot of stuff tonight, but we're starting with how Cubs fans are just transient drunk assholes. I, I used to live just south of Wrigleyville, and I've experienced this personally. They're, they're not really fans. They're just people, like you said, Ross, that like to go and get drunk at baseball games. To be fair, I mean, we all like to, uh, we all like to get drunk at baseball games, you know, periodically, but uh, it's not really the defining feature of, of the fan base, at least for me as a Cardinals fan. So uh, we tend to celebrate winning and winning a lot. And uh, we're probably not going to do it. Let, let's be real. Like we're, we're, the, we're the eighth best team in the playoffs, I think. So, well, big streaks aside, better than the Phillies. Uh, yeah. the Phillies, we, we don't pride ourselves on winning. We won once, no, or twice. We won twice in the in the history of of the Phillies. At least, uh, should we rename history. it? Should we rename this episode the Mitch Williams broadcast? <laughs> I wish. No. no, I think this is bigger than baseball. This podcast. It is bigger than baseball. Things are fucked up right now. I think we had to break the ice with some light baseball talk, but we're here to talk about some pretty serious things. I've had many people either DM me or just directly uh, tag me on Twitter and urging me to get you on the podcast to talk about supply chains. It's something that I've briefly uh, touched on over the course of the last year as, as supply chains obviously have been at the forefront of everybody's minds as the forced uh shutdown of the many economies across the globe has has thrown quite the wrench in in the global supply chains which are very heavily concentrated in southeast asia 
last year early on in the pandemic you wrote a few threads which are pinned in your uh, pinned tweet uh, about exactly what was going to happen and it seems like that has played out so I'd love to jump into it. Uh, your most yeah. recent uh, newsletter jumped into what's going on now with the, the energy crisis in China mm -hmm. and, and the repercussions of that. But I think just to set the stage, how did you know? Well, well, I think we should describe what the problems are. Like uh, we shut down the global economy. <laughs> what happens to supply chains when you when you have a bunch of uh, politicians and, and bureaucrats just decide that, that the economy can't can't function as it should as normally? Yeah, it's um, a big part of why, why when I wrote it, none of this made sense to anybody, right? But, you know, the, the, to the extent that it really seems like I was just operating way ahead of the curve, it, it, was, it was a few things happening. One, most of my career has been spent, all of my career has been spent in logistics and supply chain uh, on, on both the international and domestic side. But a big chunk of that has been doing business uh, in Asia, either exporting, you know, food and feed ingredients to Asia, uh, importing uh, chemicals or fertilizers or, you know, toys and electronics, furniture, whatever it may be. Um, so I've got a pretty good feel the way most people do what I do for a living, which is, you know, sort of my day to day is as a freight forwarder and, and uh, you know, supply chain strategists and things like that for companies. And, you get a feel for culturally what's like really, really important to different cultures and, and how their, how their workflow operates. And, and I had my, my first principle, I guess, of this whole thing was the second, the second China feels like they've got a handle on, you know, and this was in, even in February, I was starting to feel these things. Once they, once they sort of have a handle on uh, what we now know as COVID-19, then we were just calling it the coronavirus. They were going to start forcing people back to work as fast as they possibly could uh, because China is uh, to, to some degree, you know, Xi Jinping and the CCP want them to be a dual circulation economy where they're manufacturing for export, but they're also manufacturing and trying to goose consumer demand domestically. Um, but it's a very top-down approach. And so as, as you know, the country shut down for, I think China was shut down for almost 10 weeks when you factor in the, the, the shutdown, down pre-Lunar New Year, all of Lunar New Year, which is three or four weeks. And then three or four weeks after that, they weren't manufacturing much. So I, I was operating basically on a hunch that they were going to try to V-shape recovery that thing as fast as they possibly could. Uh, get everybody back to work, start cranking out goods and services and things like that and, and get the supply chains moving again. The, the second of the two first principles is that the United States, particularly the United States, our logistics model is not built to uh, stop on a dime and restart very, very quickly. Um, I've talked a lot lately about the accordion effect. It's, it's a really good way to sort of visualize it for people um, where you, you, a 10 mile long line of cars will, will slam on their brakes and 30 seconds, 10, a column of 10 miles may stop uh, and come. But by the time that first car has resumed moving again, it takes that whole column an hour to get back up to speed and to get everybody's space back out and operating normally going down the highway. You know, it'll be a parking lot at the back of that 10 miles for a long time. So when you, when you kind of hold those two things in mind, that, that China is going to restart much, much faster than the U.S. would be able to uh, absorb that, that, that volume pushing our way, that backlog of purchase orders and things like that that was uh, starting to be manufactured, the ocean carriers pulling capacity out, 
I kind of sensed that once we got into that train wreck, that congestion effect, it was going to be very, very hard to unwind. What I had no clue was, was going to come was uh, the particular mix of lockdowns and stimulus happening sort of at the same time. Um, at, but once that first round of stimulus went in and I started seeing purchase orders at factories in Asia that I work with start skyrocketing. And, and that was where that was around May and June. And I thought, Oh no, we're <laughs> never going to fix this. You know, it's, it's just not going to happen. Um, yeah. And so we find ourselves in the situation we're in where what becomes congested eventually just becomes outright failure of the system. And, and now we're in, you know, the term I use a lot lately is catastrophic failure cascades where, uh, the avalanche has started down the mountain and it, 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 at this point, it's just going to start taking out everything in its way. It'll eventually lose steam, lose energy as it hits the bottom and you'll have a period of calm. And that's when we're all going to kind of pick up the pieces of, of, of our businesses and our economies and, and say, okay, what, what's the real damage here and what happens after that? Yeah. So let's, let's dive deeper into like the, the zoom in on some more of the, the the granular facets of, of what's going mm-hmm. on right now. Cause what I see an outsider looking in prices have gone up, uh, raw materials, the lead times to, to get those to actually, uh, begin building stuff again has, has gone up astronomically with price. I'm just moving into a house trying to buy furniture and then <laughs> we just keep getting email after email. It's going to be two more weeks, two more weeks, mm-hmm. two more weeks. Uh, <laughs> we just have a few beds and this outdoor furniture right now. And it, it, it seems pretty scary, like the the inability to get goods, uh, as well as the, the increase in the prices of the goods that you can get, is putting quite a stress on the economy. And I, I'm happy that you mentioned that we uh, shut down the economy and did stimmies at the same time, because that's something I've been uh, sort of beating the drum on the last year is like, hey, this is exactly what the Weimar Republic did before they had their hyperinflationary event, right? They they didn't want to. The, the French came and occupied uh, the Weimar Republic, and they wanted to get get money from the factories working. The, the Weimar Republic leaders said, "Don't go into the factories. Don't work anymore. We're going to make stuff to to pay the French. We'll we'll print a bunch of money, give it to you, and you just stay home." And it seems very similar. Obviously, not exactly the same, but seems like we're uh, repeating or at least rhyming the the problem that the Weimar Republic had. And so that's what I've been focused on. I've been just mm-hmm. been looking out for hyperinflation. But uh, as we zoom in on the supply chains, it's becoming more and more evident that, that it's going to, it seems like it, it will be a while before they get anywhere close to being back to normal. Yeah, it's, it's, I describe this pretty frequently as, 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 as sort of a durable you know, durable dilemma that we're in here. Um, and an economy is not at any scale, really, even on a very local scale, it's not something you just start and stop, start and stop, right? It's not a race car. Um, it takes time to get up to speed. It takes time to get everybody, all of the stakeholders and actors in an economy back up to speed and, and get them sort of the psychology of the market, if you will, uh, able to feel like, Hey, we can, we can conduct business again. And so, We've had this whipsaw effect where simultaneous to us being told that this is the end of the world, this is the big one, this is the pandemic that's going to just lay waste to everything and humanity and, and the whole deal, right? 
Um, you, you hear that alarmism maybe from some of the more extreme, you know, people who are really concerned about what this, you know, about what the coronavirus can, can do to people and, and what it can do. But the real devastation, uh, if you're not counting the cost of human life, which is, which is the metric, you know, I think we all base things by ultimately. But if, if you talk about the, you know, certainly about the health of the economy, if you talk about the health of the body politic and our ability to meet our needs in some way, um, that, that patient is very much on life support right now too. Like you said, it's, it's, there's a time you could walk into Ashley furniture and get, you know, pretty much anything you wanted. And if you were custom ordering something, it was going to get made in the factory. Uh, and in two weeks, it was then going to be on a ship. It was going to take 20 days to get to Los Angeles and then maybe another 10 days to get to the distribution center to your door. And so within 45 days, you could have kind of custom built anything. Right. And it could be made half a world away. Well, now we're in a situation where even the main generic always stocked in the store because it's high volume items that Ashley furniture has, you know, their distribution center that's out by Ontario, California is, is one of the largest in, in the inland empire, which is itself a, a massive distribution market. And so they have this enormous DC, they've got container after container after container piled up there. And then all of the empty containers that they have are sitting in an unused part of Ontario international airport waiting to get back to the port. And every single one of those empty, you know, empty container is, it's an empty container needs to go back to Asia, but it's sitting on a chassis. And that chassis is needed to get another loaded box out of the port and delivered somewhere. So if you don't even have those chassis, that custom thing that you ordered may be sitting in Los Angeles, but it may be another eight to 10 weeks before it can get to you because the trucker has such a line of containers ahead of that container. So now you're talking from order to delivery 90 days, 120 days, 180 days. Um, I've got something that I ordered and it's, I was quoted when I initially ordered it. And I know the factory I've shipped for them in the past. And I was told, well, you'll have it in April. You'll have it in April. And I'm like, of, of 2022, this was six weeks ago, you know? So I was, I was being given almost a nine month lead time and it, but it does make sense. We are, we are in that, in that place. And now because of the uncertainty we're dealing with at the front end of the supply chain in Asia, it has, you know, it's now congestion here. We've got all the power situation that people are watching in China and the whole world order because of this pandemic, what started as we're worried people are going to get sick and die is now a situation where we're worried that our entire globalized way of living is going to get sick and die. Sorry, my son just uh, fell out the door over here. And <laughs> you live you live on the tenth floor. Maybe you should go deal with that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> here, buddy, come here, come here, real quick. One sec. No, you're good, man. Yeah, you just fell out. I guess he opened the door. There she is. <laughs> that is a uh, tales from the crypt at the new studio here. So yeah, we have, I mean, we have these. And so that's a, that's been the biggest, like, how come we just can't build more chasties and get them out? Like, that is, I think, right now, I think that's the tweet that actually incited somebody to tag you and be like, you need you need to talk to Ross. Like, this is not, like, straightforward is the ports or the uh, cargo ships just being out and docked off, off the coast of California. It's like, why the hell are they just standing there? Why can't we figure out something like... Uh, figuring out how to divert them to another port or something and, and unload that stuff and just get it. It's like all these goods are just sitting there off the coast. You can see them, but you can't, you can't access them. 
and I, and I guess what you're describing there's intricacies of the the supply chain and, and the chain of of shipping shit across from from asia to america that you can't you can't really just uh spin up more materials to, to facilitate no. movement of that stuff like that Mm-mm. no the so the the way the process would normally work and and you know i'm sure you have an awful lot of people within you know within the audience who who probably have conceptual at least have some clue of how this works and they certainly have self-educated on it in the last few months i'm sure but the what the, the old normal the way we used to sort of look at it was we okay we figured it was going to be 15 days ish to get something from say shanghai to los angeles or long beach and that ship is going to berth almost immediately maybe within 24 hours of entering the harbor and it's going to take about 24 hours to what we call work the vessel which is to get all of the loaded containers off that are supposed to be there and then put either empties back on or export containers back on that'd be things with grain or timber products or feed ingredients or you know chemicals uh various sorts of things that would be going back to asia on that ship that ship's done 24 hours sails up to oakland same process happens again. So within about a five or six day period, that ship may be able to call three different ports on the Western seaboard of the US. And then it's got all of its exports and, and empty containers back on and it's right back to Asia and, and for a 15 to 18 day voyage. And so that, that that whole ship, you can expect that whole ship to turn Asia, US back to Asia in 40 days, 45 days. Um, and, and that's maybe even if there's stoppages. And that's because we, these, these ports, the terminals and you know, the, the giant gantry cranes that we have and, and the very, you know, the very uh, uh, qualified and experienced longshoremen that run, that run this equipment. The process is optimized to clear that ship as fast as possible, get all of those containers on the deck of the terminal, and then immediately begin segregating them and shuffling them around the terminal. Uh, these are, this block of, you know, 300 containers is going to get on a train, it's going to go to, to Chicago. And then this block of containers here is all for local pickup and delivery uh, to all the distribution centers in the LA area. And, and the port is very efficient at doing all of that, but it also relies on the ability of truckers to, for the local stuff, to be able to gate in and gate out very, very quickly. Not only take loaded containers back to a distribution center, whoever, you know, whoever's contracted them to do the move, uh, but then also to bring those empties and those chassis back and then they just keep cycling as fast as they can. And so with, with the pandemic, the, the very the very first slowdowns and congestion began to be the fact that these containers were coming in fast and furious the way they always do. But there were fewer truckers because truckers were either sick or staying home uh, or got contact traced. Right. Uh, And so you saw 10, 20% of the labor force at the distribution centers and truckers and everybody else suddenly not there. And the containers begin to pile up very, very quickly. Um, when you can't turn the empty boxes back with the chassis and pull another load, it, it starts this very quickly kind of starts a snowball effect. And, and we've been dealing with chassis issues and, and, you know, congestion and inability, you know, slow inability to turn containers and things like that for a long, long time at Los Angeles and Long Beach, but it's never been this bad. And so we just kept shifting demand for things that we're buying away from restaurants, away from goods and services, going to baseball games, you know, getting drunk at baseball games, we changed that for buying a new couch, buying a, a new TV because we're stuck at home and can't go anywhere and we want new shit, right? So we, as, as we are, because of the lockdowns, having our buying patterns shift, but also having our ability to receive and, and transmit cargo sort of throughout the system, as it were here in the US, 
we're still buying, our demand is now increasing and accelerating the amount of stuff coming in. So we're constricting at one end, the ability for the system to relieve itself and discharge cargo and, and you know, run its normal operation cycle. And at the same time, we've made the opening at the top of the, you know, the tube toothpaste even bigger. And we're trying to jam more in and more in and more in. And at some point it just, you know, this really around September of last year, uh, it took about three months for this to build. And then about September of last year, we entered into this very durable state where ships weren't turning as fast, containers weren't turning as fast and rates began to pop and pop hard. Uh, um, we doubled in about a month in September. And once we breached that psychological barrier of about $2,000 to the West Coast, $3,000 to the West Coast, uh, it was off to the races. And then in January, uh, Europe and the United Kingdom had their first $10,000 container. Uh, what was a $3,000 maybe lane the year before, uh, 12 months prior, became $10,000. And once it was $10,000, the ocean carriers realized we can do whatever the hell we want. <laughs> no, people are going to keep buying. They're going to keep shipping cargo and keep shipping freight. And the rates begin to skyrocket. And it's just that according effect still hasn't unwound itself, man. It's, it's, uh, I mean, I've got a plan to fix the ports. I, I have no idea if, if, if anybody who matters is, is going to hear it and, and take it seriously. But, but I, I do think that as, as terrible and imperfect as my idea is, it's probably still better than anything else that's out there, but it would require a lot of coordination and, and a little bit of willingness to accept some pain on the part of all the stakeholders. Well, what is your plan? How are we going to fix this? Because it seems like a pretty massive problem. Like I, again, I'm speaking with you now because I want to learn more about it. And mm-hmm. last week in preparation for this, I called my buddy who's pretty high up at Molo Logistics out of Chicago. I was just mm-hmm. like, what the hell is going on? How bad is it? He's like, it's pretty bad, dude. Like, it's example, pretty bad. <laughs> for example, our, uh, our revenue per load is up 50% year on year. So this is last mm-hmm. week, I guess, October to October. Um, and he's like, it would take us like five to six years at the 50% revenue per load growth previously. Yeah. So, so it seems like things things are, are pretty massively uh, ramping up here. How do, how would you fix the port problem specifically? Um, there's a few things that we have to do kind of concurrently. The, the biggest issue to resolve is uh, simultaneous, like three things have to happen at once. You have to resolve the, you have to increase turn times of the container themselves. Uh, get them out of the get them out of the port faster, get them unloaded faster, get them back faster. You got to get that turn time down. You have to find ways to expand chassis capacity to the extent that turn times alone don't resolve it. And you have to expand the pool of drivers. And so if goal, if goal is to increase turn time and increase chassis utilization, which is you can't move container without a thing moving on, right? We have to free up, we have to free up more chassis to pull more containers but do it with the, the systemic constraint we have of driver shortages that we're facing in California and everywhere else in the US. Uh, we have to do it in the face of ongoing sort of contact tracing efforts or, or labor being slowed or workers not even coming back because they got all these stimulus checks and, and uh, it's just, the juice isn't worth the squeeze for the laborers to come into the warehouse on a part-time or full-time basis. You have a lot of these things. So we have these constraints that we can't really fix. Um, but what we can do, what we can do is create a model that allows us to flex up capacity intelligently uh, of cycling these containers. And so the way I would go about that is establish drop lots 
of empty container for empty containers all over the greater Los Angeles, Long Beach area. Um, your, your three big, your three big regions that you have to account for uh, going out distance wise, you have immediately close to the, to the ports, you have city of industry or, you know, we were named a city of industry, but it's Compton, right? Um, you've got a lot of these, you know, basically uh, cities or towns or jurisdictions that exist solely to be uh, organizing political bodies and, and financial and tax collecting bodies for all the distribution centers somewhat close to the port. And you have to deal with that. You have to deal with the fact that Orange County has built up pretty significantly. And at the far edges of Orange County, where a lot of the distribution centers are, you're talking 30, 40, 50 miles that a truck's got to go in order to, 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 to deliver a container and then bring it back to the port. But then you have the Inland Empire, you know, out east and, and sort of east and northeast of the city. And when you're talking like pretty far out into the Inland Empire, you're talking 75, 80, 90 miles from the port. People really forget how big the greater Los Angeles area is. The traffic is notoriously terrible. And so you have to work within these constraints because the issue we're really dealing with is more or less locally constrained to the port to, to Los Angeles. Um, Oakland and San Francisco have cleared up a lot of their backlog. Seattle and Tacoma are seeing some backlog, but they're still more or less turning things pretty quickly. Uh, Savannah's constrained and backed up, but not really that bad. New York's okay. Charleston's okay. And so the issue really is that it takes way too long for a ship to get from Shanghai to say Savannah for a lot of shippers. And so what they're doing, they're putting it on ships going to the U S West coast, even knowing it's going to maybe sit in the Harbor right now for three weeks. And then it's still going to take another three weeks for it to get, you know, to a warehouse transloaded, put on a domestic truck and then taken somewhere in the U S that six weeks is still better than it would be for them otherwise. Right. And so everybody's making the same calculation, the same trade-off. So we have to get, containers away from the receivers, the, you know, the consignees or the importers, and we have to get them out of their facility and get them staged up and ready to go. So you establish drop lots all over, man them with longshoremen, people that want extra hours, whatever it may be, but you have the ability to connect to these lots to keep track of the containers and where they're all at and the chassis that they're sitting on all over the city. Simultaneous to that, what you need to be able to do is temporarily waive or at least increase the, the, the capacity of drivers available that could go pick these things up by increasing your gross vehicle weight allowance and saying, okay, this guy has driven a box truck. He doesn't have a CDL that's classed up, but he knows how to drive a semi, right? And all you want that guy to do is take a 12, 13, 14,000 pound tractor, go pick up a 12,000 pound container and chassis unit. You're still about 25,000 pounds for the whole unit. And you want to maybe even 30,000 pounds, but just have pools of people shuttling empties back. Let the, let the experienced drayman, the experienced container truckers pull the heavy containers, do the more dangerous aspect of the work, driving during the day, delivering, pulling containers out, but get the empties away from where they're being bottlenecked at the receivers and have now Here's where it gets fun. National Guardsmen, right? There's a huge, there's a huge amount. The National Guard in the United States has over 50,000 heavy, you know, what we would consider sort of heavy vehicles that are of a class where if they were in the commercial sector, they would need a CDL. That's tractor trailers, that's heavy fuel trucks. That's so you have an experienced pool of operators that can drive and do these things. They don't need to deal with the port. They don't need to interchange and go through the whole rigmarole and, you know, worry about making an appointment and then it takes four hours to get into the port just to get a container 
that backlog has to be separated. What happens at the port, the delays at the port have to be separated from the ability to get container, empty containers and chassis back to the port. We establish drop lots. We utilize as much as possible um, trained, but maybe not necessarily licensed drivers to, you know, heavy that, that are going to be driving 80,000 pound units. They can drive 25 or 30,000 pounds safely. So let's have them. Let's have the National Guard. Let's have every single person capable of operating a vehicle safely of that size and start pulling that stuff back to the port and start cycling those chassis back as fast as possible, getting the empties back into the port and back on the ship. So we begin to clear that congestion, that backlog. And then the way you do that, because LA is of course famous for its traffic. The way you do that is you establish routes from each of the major drop lots that you have around the area. And then you run all of those empties back at night. The ports are going to 24 seven TTI, which is one of the long beach terminals. Um, TTI is pi piloting a 24 seven operation, but your problem is we don't have enough drivers to take advantage. Drivers only have so many hours in a day they can drive and then they slip seat the truck. A new driver comes into the same truck and then he runs for eight or 10 hours. But your problem is you're not getting maximum utilization of that 24 hours. It doesn't matter if the port's open, right? There's not enough drivers to get in and out and be pulling things to take advantage of those hours. You can't run three shifts. Most companies don't have that available. So we utilize the licensed up drivers. We utilize the CDL guys, the ones that are experienced at working with the ports and they are all they are doing just 24 seven is pulling loads out of the port as fast as they can to the extent they can pull empties back to the port, they do it and back to the terminals. But you establish these drop lots everywhere and utilize every other driver possible that's not necessarily a CDL guy, but who is experienced and safe can safely operate these things. Get them cycling back to the port in a completely separate lane of effort and do it at night. Establish, you know, we have express lanes all over the US. Most of the roadways are marked for it. So why from the hours of say, 8 p.m. to maybe 3 a.m., 4 a.m., 5 a.m., can you not have portions of the highway that are essentially express lanes to get these empty containers out of the Inland Empire, out of Los Angeles County, out of Orange County, and back to the drop lots at the port so we can utilize these chassis? So by dividing and reorganizing the way we think about how a container movement should work, we have the ability to build sort of some excess capacity back into the system where we didn't have one before. So that would be that part of the operation. There's a lot of little nitty gritty ins and outs things. People who kind of know what they're talking about are going to hear what I'm saying and, and go, well, that's not workable for this reason. It, it is absolutely workable, but I'm not going to waste your whole podcast time getting into the tiny little minutia, but it is absolutely feasible. It is absolutely possible. But you can see where something like that would also take an enormous concentration and coordination of effort from a political side, from a law enforcement side, from a um, all the ocean carriers and all the trucking companies and everything. I mean, it would be, it'd be a big lift, but we can do it, but we can do it. Not only, well, I, I can't, I don't have enough experience to, to validate if we can do it the way you describe it. It seems like we can do it. I, it, I don't care if we can do it. I think we have to do something, right? That, mm -hmm. I think that's the point. Uh, I, I want to be there. like, we have to do something. I think it's, it's yeah, a good, a good plan, a good plan executed now. Or even a mediocre plan executed now is better than a perfect plan executed a week from now. Yeah. Right. I mean, if we just stand around, I mean, problem admiration is a, is a thing that, you know, that's what like a lot of folks in the military call it when we've identified there's this giant strategic issue and then all these papers get written about what a problem is. And nobody really puts a plan together and actually begins to execute towards solving that problem. They just 
they stand around admiring the problem like it's a piece of art and they just keep talking about it. Well, I'm sick of talking about the problem. A lot of other people are sick of talking about the problem. So I'm just going to be the asshole that just stands up and is like, hey, here, here is a plan. Good, good, bad, or indifferent, but let's try it. Let's at least kind of get off the X, stop constantly talking about what the issue is and begin moving towards it. The White House does not need to be holding more freaking stakeholder meetings and task force meetings and council meetings and talking to the CEOs of Amazon and Walmart and Target about it. Those guys don't know jack shit about what they need to be doing at the port. They're To get to that level, you have to be fundamentally a brilliant human being in so many ways. You got to be smart. You got to be politically savvy. You got to be able to do those things. But this, this weird, dirty, nitty gritty world of, of granular ground level containerized logistics in a highly congested environment, that's not something that anybody in Washington, D.C. or in the ivory towers is going to have any is going to have any concept how to do. It's it's going to take five truck drivers, five longshoremen, five port executives, some people from the ocean carriers and then law enforcement and local politicians all sitting in a room together and going, here's a map. Here's where we're going to start putting all of the containers that we need to get back to the city. Here's how we're going to get the National Guard activated to start pulling these things back. Here's how we're going to get farmers, 16-year-olds, 18-year-olds who can drive a farm truck but aren't CDL'd up, but they, they can haul grain to market under the farm truck provisions that California has, every state has them. Get those guys in working. Have them working during hours when, when the system is not already working. Let's make more use of the, of the labor and, and, and the hours of the day that we have that we can't make use of now because the system is not built for this. So we have to break that break that mold, reorganize the work, get new blood in, and we would start addressing the issue. You would start seeing, I think, within two to four weeks, you'd really begin to see signs that this is the issue. That particular issue of turning containers faster will begin to abate. And then you can potentially begin to unwind the. Uh, <laughs> you can potentially <laughs> unwind that cascade. I'm, I'm glad this. I'm, I'm glad this video is not going out right now. I might've just like, looked like Charlie day and it's always sunny. You no, know, he's trying to explain like Pepe Sylvie. Yeah. Pepe Sylvia, Pepe Sylvia, where's the mail? But <laughs> we need to think creatively like this. Another thing I would add though, is just like, we need to end the stimulus checks. So just, we need to get people back to work. Like it's, it's, um, it's funny. I'm, I'm, I'm such a, a free market individual sovereignty, let the people decide sort of thing. And, I do, I do laugh at the people that, that are defending the particular way we run our economy because we do not have a free economy. We really don't. It's, it's highly regulated. There's a huge amount of walled gardens and regulatory capture that's happened. And we try, to, we try to paper over our own bad political decisions and our own captured interests and things like that by utilizing money supply and, and you know, interest rates and we, and we manipulate our money in such a way that it manipulates human psychology, sometimes deliberately, sometimes accidentally, because the masters of the universe can't possibly know everything. And so you're right. We, we have to quit creating the ability for people to unthinkingly spend on things they don't really need. It doesn't just have to be a check. It doesn't just have to be free money. Like there's other ways we can resolve some of the, the human issues that we face uh, of how do we take care of people who, 
you know, for whatever, to one degree or another, aren't as able to take care of themselves as others, we can still help those people, but we don't have to do it just by sending free money willy-nilly to every Tom, Dick, and Harry in the world. And then they're turning around and buying things that are congesting the ports. Like that, that is a perverse incentive. And I agree with you hundred percent. We got to well, that, Not only that, it's like, that's one part of the perverse, perverse incentive. And the other part is like, oh, I'd rather make 10% less than I would if I were actually working and sit on my ass. So I'm not going to hop in that truck. Why would I want to drive across the country? I think I'm just getting, I'm getting money from, from uncle Sam. Um, and not to call, call out anybody. I mean, this, again, like you described, like this is what you're incentivizing when you, when you give these handouts, like it's just the natural incentives of the system. Like anybody would absolutely take the money and, and, and choose leisure over work if, if they could. Uh, yeah. The, the average human being would, I, I wouldn't, but you know, I, <laughs> I've got, you know, I've got a bit of like a shark mentality. Like if I stop moving, I'll die. Yeah. Right. I won't be able to breathe. And, and so this is, this stuff is what I know. It's what I love. Um, but a lot of people maybe aren't as fortunate to, to be able to do what they love for a living and make money doing it. And yeah. so you're right. They'll, they'll choose sitting on their ass playing PlayStation or going to the library and reading books and, and, you know, spending their time differently than maybe not being as economically productive as they would otherwise, if they had to be. Yeah. I agree. And it's, that's another, I, I actually in big, Bitcoin world, we talk about this a lot, right? Because so a question I have for you, and I'm, I'm going to ask the question, I'm going to elaborate. So how much of this was predictable, right? And so like if if you were in the industry in, in June 2019, you're, you were to be told this is going to happen in, in March of 2020, would you have been like, here's what's going to play? I mean, it seems like you knew exactly in March of 2020 with, with the threads and or early 2020 with the threads that you wrote that this was going to play out. And yeah. Uh, so on top of that, like, is this avoidable? And so like in Bitcoin land, like the U S dollar is a reserve currency of the world. It got that, mm-hmm. that way. Um, via unnatural forces, right? Nixon took us mm-hmm. off the gold standard in 71. And then to create demand for dollars globally, we essentially had to flood emerging markets with cheap labor with dollars and, and purchase goods manufactured there in favor of, of goods manufactured here at home. We had to create demand for dollars. How do we do that? You go buy goods uh, constructed with cheap labor, uh, predominantly in Southeast Asia. And over the course of five decades, and that, uh, that urge to flood the global market with dollars has very tightly concentrated our, our supply chain in one, one yeah. part of the world, which has made us fragile to an extent. Very, mm-hmm. very and, fragile. And, I mean, we, it's a mix of things, right? It's, it's when we fully decouple, I mean, cause we, we kind of sort of were decoupled from gold before 71. Um, yeah. but when we kind of made it official and we said, look, exiting the Vietnam war to whatever extent, maybe we think we achieved our political goals, um, there, you know, we certainly saw, and definitely Kissinger did, and some of the others saw the opportunity ahead of us to not only make the dollar the, the reserve currency of the world, but but outsource all of like the nasty, dirty things that it, activities and outputs of economic activity, right? Environmental, uh, you know, environmental spoilage, things like that, uh, air quality. Uh, you know, we saw all all of these things that come with heavy industry that can make communities sick because the chemicals are being dumped on the water, whatever it was, 
there was certainly a game theory calculation happening there as well to say how do we use how do we use monetary policy and basically the ability to float uh, our currency for for political and economic you know gain not just not just hey we're we have a theory about monetary supply um, I mean it was it was a weapon right the, the decision to decouple from gold and continue to expand the dollar as the global currency was an economic weapon and it was a deal with the devil that we made because we thought it was one way to attack the soviet union and degrade and disrupt them the more countries we can tie to us economically and financially the harder it would be for the soviets to be able to move in on them so we we kind of littered the world with economic tripwires not just military but also economic ones where Nobody really wanted to work with the Soviet Union unless they absolutely had to, unless they were basically under threat of military force. So, you know, we spent them into oblivion. We, we captured the world and we thought we were at the end of history, which is why we started outsourcing and globalizing so heavily in the 80s and 90s. And we allowed China to take the brunt of a lot of that. And we did fragilize. We fragilized ourselves big time because I don't think I think in our arrogance, we never assumed anything beyond the first start of where the world, where the reserve currency, of the world, nobody's going to cut off their nose to spite their face and really, truly try to attack us on the basis of that strength. And China decided to do it. And they've been remarkably effective at doing it over the last 30 years. And all of that has built together now to this sort of existential crisis of globalization that we have. And um, so to the extent we could have seen this exact sort of thing happening, um, mechanically i saw exactly how it was going to play out but it was always on the premise of in the worst case scenario of port disruption what is this going to look like and that was what i sort of operated on the premise of what i don't think i saw happening in the first quarter of last year because uh, you can read some of the stuff i wrote then and i said yeah this is major disruption it's going to be pain for months or even years but we're not going we're not going to see a, a total complete stovepipe of all global supply chains. I assume there would be at least enough flex and global capacity. We'd begin to start making some rational decisions about what to do. And we did not do that. We decided to go full wily e. Coyote, strap our asses to a rocket, and launch ourselves to the moon. Right. And not in the good way, not in the way all the apes listening are probably super happy about here. You know, we're not, it's not, we're not going to that kind of moon. It's bad. Right. It's a rocket ship and we're all going to die. And so we, we decided to play economic chicken with ourselves a little bit say, you know what, out of an abundance of safety, we're going to lock down, but don't worry if you can't go to work because we're going to give you all this money. But then we didn't do anything to offset the very, very predictable output of giant flood of capacity, leaving the market as the factories in Asia shut down, not giving the ocean carriers any incentive to keep capacity ready to go so that the second the factories came on, the system could turn back on and at least begin moving again. It took months and months and months and months and months for the carriers to fully get all their capacity back in. And by that time, the backlog was too big already at the factories. And, and you know, we had a we had a huge, you know, had a huge opening that we were dumping freight into and a very, very small uh, you know, way for it to exit that part of the system and get moving to the US. And so I don't think I could have predicted, I don't think anybody could have predicted it with this level of specificity that this scenario was going to happen. But certainly once the factories began kicking back on and the U.S. was just moving into lockdowns in March and April, you know, at that point, my spidey senses were, were telling me, and I was saying somewhat publicly that, guys, 
the, the this is not going to go away at this point. Like we're, we're every day that goes by that we're, we're allowing this paradigm to exist. We're creating three days of misery on the other side of it. And here we are. Right. Um, I'd figured early on, I, I figured a year ago, like September, October of last year, I figured we were going to be well into 2021, possibly into 2022. And I started doing the math on when the labor strikes and things, you know, could potentially be starting in 2022 at the West coast. And, you know, that's when I really started to realize, you know, we're going to clear up one mess just in time to start another. And um, so at this point, the decisions that we make on a monetary policy side in the next, I'd say three to four months is going to determine how severe and extreme inflation is going to be for a while. Um, we're probably going to move right into stagflation, right out of inflation. Uh, and that's going to be durable for maybe two or three years. And then we're going to move into deflation because we're, we're, we're overbuilding everything. Now we're, we're trying to fill inventories as fast as we can, because we're all operating. We being, actors in the economy, companies and things like that. And inflation, right? Both from both from a fiscal policy side, but also just from a, a, a real price side because of how economic actors behave, particularly in the US. We're gonna go from deficit, we're gonna just overexpand, overbuild, do everything we can to get as much goods and cargo into the system as possible. Price collapses are gonna hit, companies are gonna be left with excess inventory all of a sudden, and, now, and then prices are gonna start to fall. And what used to take 20 or 30 years to have that sort of whipsaw effect is now going to take maybe four years or five years. And so it's going to be more severe, more catastrophic. There's things we could do to mitigate that, but I don't know that there's enough adults in the room in DC and New York and at the Fed uh, to prevent us from really stepping on our own tails here. Yeah. That's what I was going to say. The, the greatest shame of this all is that we have a bunch of assholes making decisions that at the top of everything and truly are completely disconnected from not only the economy but your everyday american and they don't operate on the same field that the rest they of have them. no idea they really don't it's um the ones that get it the ones that truly get it i think are few and far between and they're usually i i mean the classic example of course is ron paul right mm -hmm. uh and before him really ross perot i i all they did when Ross Perot was talking about a lot of these issues back in the nineties and Pat Buchanan was talking about these issues in the eighties and nineties and they, they were mocked ruthlessly, you know, the globalization is the way and all the Harvard MBAs and all these assholes that, that are Lords of the universe that think that not only this land or everybody that's a Harvard MBA, but at least a good 80% of them in the early nineties were certainly pushing this. Um, they thought they were right because they everybody thought we were at the end of history. The Soviet Union fell, and now it's going to be a renewal of Pax Americana and an American-led global world order. And that was dumb, as it turned out, right? There's always going to be someone biting at your ankles, and eventually one of them is going to, you know, another dog is going to get big enough to be able to, to, to mess with you. And But we made these decisions. We made these calculations. They turned out to be extremely dumb. Ross Perot and Pat Buchanan, to some extent, in the 90s turned out to be completely right. And then Ron Paul, who I think has been right on damn near everything, going back maybe 30 years, um, we're going to look back and recognize that, that he was really John the Baptist out in the wilderness eating honey and grasshoppers. And we're going to think that, God Almighty, he was right. Why weren't we listening? 
the Bitcoin community has been listening for a long time, which I think is is why the Bitcoin community is the way it is. You have such a high degree of people within the community who are really focused on these concepts, individual sovereignty and, and uh, you know, following the steps of, you know, the Austrian school and the Chicago school after that. Um, and that's awesome. That's awesome. Uh, the, the exciting thing for me about like the crypto world and, and blockchain and all these sort of emergent technologies and ways of transacting commerce is it's, I think for the first time, first time forcing a scale of people, a real significant market and political economy moving scale of people to make decisions outside the framework of what does this cost in dollars and how do we uphold and support that system? There are a lot of people inside the community that are going, no, that insurgent mentality is going to rip the system apart from the inside. And the real battle is not to what extent is the house of cards going to come crashing down. It's going to be how, how do we leverage these ideas and this, this sort of revival of the individual human spirit? How do we leverage that to build a system that, that works better for people at a small scale and at a big scale, instead of just for the captured interest in DC and New York and LA? Yeah. And I guess the Bitcoiners argument, right? Is like Bitcoin, the protocol itself is just an extension of natural law theory of natural rights. It is the embodiment of the perfect protection of private property rights in the digital age. And, and it fixes uh, probably the most important tool that humans, it is the most important tool that humans leverage, which is money. And the fact that we've been completely disconnected from any semblance of a, of a hard money or a, a monetary good that sort of curbs the, the ability for central bankers and politicians alike to, to print money ex nihilo just on a whim and, and, and add central bankers the central bankers operate inside a system every time they they uh, increased money supply beyond a certain amount meant that they had to get a cat of nine tails across the back ten times I'm not necessarily advocating for violence uh, I'm not not advocating for violence every now and again but you know <laughs> To what extent I'm kidding, only people who really know me will, will know. But um, uh-huh. I mean, if, if, you know, the joke being, though, if there were real tangible consequences to the very small body of people that make these decisions, I think their decision making would certainly be a lot different. Right. The more you eliminate consequences uh, for for bad decision making at scale, the, the greater it is that that they will continue making bad decisions and building the potential for a complex cascade failure to happen. And that, that has to be part of the equation too, as to what extent are we building new perverse incentives into a new system, you know, vice maximizing, you know, individual freedom to, to conduct trade by and between sovereign citizens. I I mean, I think it's imperative that we just, go build the system in parallel and tell them to fuck Mm -hmm. off. Okay. They were doing this. You've, Mess. I mean, just look at the last year. I mean, mm-hmm. he, the Fed, uh, actively attempted to overshoot their traditional historical two percent inflation target. They did, and then they acted surprised and told us that <laughs> inflation. Don't worry, it's only only transitory. Nobody uh, could have seen this happening, right? Yeah, <laughs> nobody could have seen us. it. We. It's like they just piss on your face and tell you it's raining. They they told us like, hey, we're gonna print so much money that we're gonna overshoot our target. You overshoot our target. Oh shit, we're surprised. Like, what's going? Like, and again, like you mentioned, there's no repercussions. Just today, Biden 
who isn't making any decisions, you can't even think, but whoever's holding the strings of, of Joe Biden uh, has announced that they intend to reaffirm Jerome Powell as, as the Fed chairman. Um, and then just Terrific. in the last month, you have three. That's how, that's, how, that's how it works. You got Jerome Powell running the Fed. You got General Milley running, you know, Joint Chiefs of Staff and He's done. He's done so terrific. Um, it, it's uh, that was sarcasm. People couldn't see me rolling my eyes so hard. It hurts now. Um, but yeah, there, there's no consequences for these bad actors and they're really stupid, self-interested, captured decision-making. And, and, and I got to tell you, I was having a conversation with someone um, about, uh, about NFTs and, and it's a, it's a thing that I've just now kind of started to try to wrap my head around, but, like the really exciting thing about NFTs, like if you take an artist, like there, there's someone I follow on Twitter and, 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 you know, she's a, she's an artist who does traditional art, but she does photography and now she's doing digital art. And so she was sort of describing this whole NFT thing to me and, you know, how she's, how she's working on like selling her digital art this way. And, and the thought just kind of hit me that like, if, if, if this, if this artist, you know, who has like, a, you know, like a screen name of, of, of cake can, can go create something and then completely independent of any government intervention, list it for sale, get paid in a currency that has zero uh, government input into it, and really only has you know the government and, and monetary policy only having uh, to, to the extent that when you have to pull it out of that currency to get it into a fiat currency to go use it at the store or whatever. But we've, we're now creating we're now creating a marketplace and an ability for people completely independent of fiat currency, taxation, anything else, to create something of value, and to transmit something of value to someone else, and have zero government intervention in, in any of that process. And that is uh, an anomaly, an, an anomaly in at least the last thousand years of economic history. Yeah, I'm not. That, uh... That is incredibly, that's incredibly exciting to me. It's powerful. It's powerful. NFTs are a big, uh, they're like a big, a big meme right now. Like, like, yeah, the the concept of being able to, um, just being able to monetize content. Uh, Again, Mm -hmm. like you said, individually, like, like I'm trying to find notifications. I don't have any right now. Um, But this podcast, it'll go out to the world. And in my RSS feed, I have a Bitcoin address, a Lightning Network address in it. And as people listen on particular apps that have Lightning Network wallets on them, Bitcoin wallets on them, they'll be able to stream me Satoshi's per minute listened. Or if they like a particular point that we make throughout this conversation, they'll be able to send me Bitcoin directly to my wallet, which is just embedded in my RSS feed. It gets picked up on that open protocol. And it's... It's crazy what's going on. Like if you had a lightning network address, like there's ways in which like for this episode, I could split those sats with you too. I could say, all right, mm-hmm. I'm going to take 50% of the sats and Ross is going to get 50 others and it would go directly to your wallet. We wouldn't have to coordinate it all and you handing me the address and, and you'd be able to to profit from this episode as well in, in Bitcoin. And I, th- I really think it is the most important project in the world right now. Um, because we need to wrest control of the money from the government. Because every bad decision, every top-down, centrally planned decision that has put us in the, the precarious situation that we are today stems from the ability of, of these kleptocrats to, to print money and go spend it on these terrible decisions uh, as they see fit. 
And so if you can just take control of that ability away from them, it adjusts opportunity cost on the economy on a global scale and really forces you to allocate capital more efficiently and towards things that are actually worthwhile and, and will add positive economic value to the overall economy. The, the biggest thing that, and, and this, and this is the real potential of, of, you know, of Bitcoin as, as, a, as a currency, but uh, the entire model from a scalability side is the security of the security of transactional and contractual law. Um, when I, when I ship, when I, when I ship a thing, right. From A to B, the whole thing's governed by a set of commercial documents. There's a bill of lading, which is an actual contract of carriage between all of, you know, all of what we call the beneficial interests or the beneficial parties, um, who, who basically at some degree or another hold title to the goods at, at one level or another. And it's all outlined according to the, you know, eco terms, international commerce terms, and so you hear people talk about XWorks or FOB or SIF or whatever in the industry. And, and all that is, is a measure of how much does each party have to pay and what's their level of risk at different points in the transaction. So being able to, and, and, and you get into things like disputes over which document is the valid governing document. I, I have this commercial, I have this commercial invoice that says X, somebody else, the counterparty has commercial invoice that says Y, and which of these is the authentic document. You spend a lot of time wrangling over what is legitimate, right? So the ability to, to uh, secure and validate a transaction alone is an enormous step forward uh, from a in my view, that benefits real world supply chains. But the next thing that has to really be resolved, and this is where I think the this sort of wild, wild west thing that, that, that NFT is kind of giving rise to over the last year, right? Um, and will continue to is that we are, we are innovating a model of commerce that is only now starting to have some sort of output in the real world. And that's always been the weakness uh, of Bitcoin is, is how, how does a thing physically get made, physically get paid to be made, physically get shipped through time and space and do so in a way that's not denominated in fiat currency. And so that that's been like that hard really kind of choke point that I think Bitcoin and, and the system in general has faced, but we're closer now than we've ever been to creating a holistic model of commerce that accounts for the legal rights of all the stakeholders, uh, physically making a thing and moving it through time and space to another place. Uh, we're closer than we've ever been to resolving that. And I think the tipping point's going to come when Everything except maybe customs fees can be paid for in some form of crypto. Well, if we, I don't, I don't see the U.S. government though allowing us to ever pay customs fees in Bitcoin. Um, well, but we're gonna, uh, we're but, gonna bankrupt the U.S. government. They're already bankrupt. We're gonna, we're gonna make sure they never do. What, what the trend I would pay attention to, and actually one I'm very close to. I'm in the Bitcoin mining industry outside of this podcast. And I'm sorry for whatever the hell is in the background here, and it's very loud. Uh, sounds like. Sounds like tree frogs or uh, yeah. cat, uh, cicadas. Cicadas, whatever, whatever's going on. But yeah. one thing that I'm very close to and uh, I'm very excited about, and I don't think many people are paying attention to, is the convergence of the energy sector and the Bitcoin mining world. Right, and Bitcoin mining is very heavily dependent on energy, and the cheapest forms of energy are stranded and wasted energy sources throughout the the energy sector. Where it be wasted, hydro. 
solar, wind, uh, natural gas that's being flared, whatever it be, you're, they're being, uh, those wasted and stranded sources are being utilized to mine Bitcoin. And what I'm just seeing, I work predominantly with oil and gas companies using their flare gas to mine Bitcoin. We show it with generators. We say, don't flare that, pipe it to these generators. We'll create electricity. It's funny being in Texas. Right? <laughs> That's part of the reason why I'm down here. And uh, they, they're having aha moments. So they are beginning to realize that they, particularly with natural gas, can get a, multiples and multiples of the value that they're able to get at market mm-hmm. price, at Henry Hub, NYMEX, whatever it may be. Um, and so they're having aha moments. And I think what you're going to see that convergence of the physical and the digital world is going to happen in the energy sector. And they're going to start pricing things uh, in Bitcoin and settling energy trades in Bitcoin. I think that's the big moment for Bitcoin is when you, it is. you transition away from the petrodollar, having to go to Saudi Arabia, convert your local currency to dollars to then buy that oil and ship it back. At some point, it's just going to be, hey, I'm going to send you Bitcoin. It's going to have a settlement relatively in like pretty much instantly and you're going to send me the goods and we're not going to do any currency conversion on the back end. I'm just going to send you this, this hard currency, this digital currency in Bitcoin. I think we're closer to that moment than, than most people realize. Uh, you know, all the big energy companies are seriously considering it and some of them are already implementing it into their, into their business stack. Um, I, I think that I, I, I would agree with that, right? Because without the, w- without energy, Energy infrastructure, you know, food, water, and energy, right? If you can find a way to convert commerce in those three domains and the infrastructure of those domains to utilize Bitcoin at at, at a fundamental level, the way they do dollars today, um, you're probably ninety percent of the way to solving the problem. So, the really interesting thing would be like I know, like Russell Okung, for example, is you know the 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 football player, the NFL player. Um, you know, he, he and I have had some level of interaction kind of publicly on Twitter about this issue. And, and, uh, you know, for, for, you know, for him, a big passion project is, is increasing food security and jobs training and, and, and technological training inside inner cities and inside urban environments. Right. And, and so that always got me thinking like, how, how, how does a guy like that marry his passion and, and advocacy for Bitcoin and individual sovereignty to real physical, tangible outputs that increase human health and security in places there wasn't before. Like almost how do you use Bitcoin essentially as a tool for good rather than as a tool for just a different way of transferring wealth, right? From one person to another, how do you actually create positive output with it? And so the ability for someone to um, get paid in Bitcoin to tap into, you know, maybe their, you know, their, you know, their flare off, you know, gas and things like that but then to convert that into a pipe a physical pipeline of energy that maybe is powering a a small vertical farming operation inside of a city that is a schoolhouse for agriculture and food for students and provides meals and 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 healthy things to their families but also gives them training like that's where i think if you can convince that whole that whole pipeline of stakeholders and people from the natural gas well all the way through to uh, food in people's bellies in, in a city maybe 100 miles away. Being able to do that, I think we're closer to that than we've ever been. And I'm not even worried that it's going to happen. I think it's inevitable. Human innovation is absolutely unbelievable. And this pandemic has been a huge spark for innovation, really. As scary as it is, we're talking about all the supply chain disasters. 
at the same time underneath it, innovation, you know, like, like necessity is the mother of innovation. Right. And we're getting there and it, it, it is exciting. That's one of the reasons I'm so hopeful, particularly about America. Like I, you know, Adam Townsend taught me this, like never short America. And I really believe that like America is uniquely in some ways, uniquely and fundamentally suited for the crypto and Bitcoin revolution. It really is. We, we just, we have a higher appetite for complacency in some ways in the U S like we're, we've been fat and sassy for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, but now we're being challenged in ways economically and militarily. We haven't been in anybody's memory really. And I think that's going to spark a level of innovation and creative capacity in people and get them off their asses to start doing some really interesting things. And like, like what you're talking about, you're starting to denominate a fi- the physical creation of power in, in a, in a non fiat currency. Yeah. That's amazing to me. Absolutely amazing to me that, that we're already at that point. It's going to happen within a decade. It, it's, it's moving much faster than people realize. And to your point about the food and the circular economy there, that's happening as well. Uh, I've had a gentleman on the podcast. He, he goes by the name Untapped Growth on Twitter, at Untapped Growth, mm-hmm. named Joel. But uh, he's very, doing, very smart guy. Yeah, he's doing a regenerative, regenerative cattle farming. He's creating these these cattle farming bonds that paid for in Bitcoin. You can get paid out uh, in meat, and you can own droves of roaming cattle that are working to regenerate uh, desolate farmland. Um, if you can capture their methane and run Bitcoin mining rigs off of it, and there, there you go, like cow people, farts, literally. <laughs> people are doing that as well. It's all happening. no way. Come on. Yeah. Oh yeah. That's amazing. It's happening. There's uh, there's manure. There's, there's the ability to capture that methane, and the the question is 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 how is the flow variability of of the methane coming from cow farts? Is it is it enough to sustain a mining operation long enough? That's something that needs to be figured out. But people are working on it. They're, they're at least going to figure out whether or not it does work. Um, Necessity is the mother of in, you know of invention, man. So yeah, here we yeah. are. Cow, yeah. cow farts running Bitcoin mining rigs. That's pretty incredible. <laughs> it's you is. It's Bitcoin mining incentivizes Bitcoin mining, the, the pure mechanism of proof of work and the, its demand for energy, the, the need to create electricity to produce hashes that could potentially uh, allow you to add a block to the Bitcoin blockchain, which then gets you Bitcoin. That that drive is going to drive crazy. I mean, it already is. It's going to incentivize nuclear energy. I know nuclear reactors that want to go to or nuclear people, nuclear companies that want to build reactors and put them in basically remote places that are using diesel generators that are costing their localities 30 cents a kilowatt hour. They want to go and bring cheap nuclear energy to these localities. However, you you can't just bring a reactor, plug it in and serve electricity. It takes time to build out the transmission lines to to actually connect to that grid. Um, And Bitcoin mining is the perfect mechanism to incentivize that. You can bring the reactor and uh, create a small connection to a mining operation that will pay you for the electricity while you're building out those transmission lines. And once those transmission lines are done, you serve that electricity from the nuclear reactor to the local community and you take up your mobile Bitcoin mining operation, you move down the road and you do it to another community. Like uh, Bitcoin is going to bring cheap, abundant energy to the world. It's going to take time, but it's happening. It's going to make us the most energy efficient civilization that's ever existed on this planet. Um, so the, glo- the global commercial fleet of ships is like 50,000. Let's say maybe 30% of them are of a size where it makes sense to run them with nuclear power the way we do submarines or the way we do like aircraft carriers. I don't know. You know the, 
I've thought forever that we need to have nuclear powered commercial fleets. We do not need to be burning freaking heavy fuel oil and marine fuel oil, you know, bunkers in the ships. We don't need to be mixing them with all sorts of other crap to, to, to get to this ultra low sulfur content uh, that's wrecking ships engines and causing them all sorts of distress. I mean, very famously, we had a whole run of these issues in the late part of last year and the early part of this year. Um, you know, to the extent that we should be thinking that way, I mean, hell, I don't know, man, maybe, maybe putting a, you know, Bitcoin mining operation on the back of a commercial ship that's thrown on nuclear power is a hell of a way to argue for converting commercial fleets over. Um, I mean, it's possible too, especially if Skynet becomes a thing, you're going to have internet in the remote areas of the sea as well. So you can just connect maybe, Skynet and send the hashes over that satellite connection. Maybe the matrix had it figured out and we should just be like utilizing people as batteries. No, this is gets away from the, this gets us away from, from the matrix. We're going to get back to, to building things in meat space. It's, I, agree. Uh, I love it. Well, we came here to talk about supply chains. Maybe we should end. So I, I'm sorry for going off in Bitcoin tangent. I can, Go talk about that stuff. No, it's a fa- it's a fascinating you know, thing. It's one of the reasons I was like super excited when when you reached out. And I was like, because uh, I get to talk about like why things are screwed up a lot. I tell customers every day. I have conversations with customers that you know it could be a company that makes fitness equipment, it could be a electronics company, it could be a food and feed ingredient you know importer. But what or tires is not a thing everybody's freaking out about. So not enough tires, and, and there's not um, <laughs> that whole supply chain is disintermediated and disrupted really bad too. But to the extent that I get to talk about like really negative things all the time, and and like to the to to the point that the opposite of my personality, I'm a very optimistic and hopeful person. I, I really am. There's a reason I sign all my like newsletters and stuff is like doom sparrow sparrow. While I breathe, I hope, mm-hmm. and I mean that. And and that's what like this whole thing was like super fascinating to me to like get in this conversation and start bridging that gap because there's not enough conversation outside of Bitcoin world, outside of crypto and blockchain world about what does this all mean? Like, like to one extent or another, this is happening. It's already happening. It's a net. I think we've reached past the point of it's an inevitability. It is happening, but it's also an inevitability that it's going to be at some scale, uh, a challenge to the, to the, to the current, global world order now, i don't mean that like a conspiracy sense just the way in which we order and, and and govern our lives and that's our supply chains fundamentally right if logistics is a map of human intent supply chains are human terrain it's it's the way in which we navigate and solve our own differences and we move up maslow's hierarchy of need you know economically and so bitcoin is already it's already there in that we have to rationalize with and accept the fact that if nothing else it's going to be a parallel economy and parallel institutions to the existing and has a has a better than not likely chance of usurping the old way at some point. I would even argue it's imperative that it usurps the old way as we get Bitcoin or we get the Chinese social credit system exported to the rest of the world. And the U.S. intelligence agencies and the governments, they want to do that. Jerome Powell, Christine Lagarde, Augustine Carstens, the Bank of International Settlements, they've all come out and said they want to institute central bank digital currencies uh, of which the, the central bankers have granular control of who can send money to who, how much money anybody has at any given point in time, whether or not your money expires at a certain date. Uh, that is not a future I want myself or my children to mm-hmm. live in. And the only way out of that is is Bitcoin. I, and I do. It's Bitcoin's already succeeded. But like the 
hash rate migration that we witnessed earlier this year, China banning mina, mining and literally kicking out the whole mining industry or at least 90% of it out of its borders. Having that hash rate come off the network, the network difficulty just adjust and keep moving and producing blocks like nothing happened um, was a huge stress test of the network that Bitcoin passed with, with flying colors. There's no turning back. It's just a matter of how quickly uh, the, the old guard recognizes that, that this is superior and will be the future uh, of uh, a free humanity. I don't question whether or not they want a free humanity. I would argue, I, I put my tinfoil hat on, I think there's a controlled demolition of the global economy to cattle herd us into these, these social credit scoring systems. Like you said, money, food, and energy are the three most important pillars of, of human life and civilization, and they seem to be actively attempting to fuck up all three of those things at once. I mean, money, obviously, they're printing a shit ton of it. The energy, they're, they're actively decommissioning reliable baseload energy like natural gas and nuclear in favor of unreliable uh, Renewable. <laughs> renewables that, that only fuck up grids and make electricity more expensive. And now in the infrastructure bill, it seems like they're, they're targeting cattle and you know, pig farmers pretty pretty aggressively you know, trying to disincentivize the, the proliferation so. of, of reliable proteins. Um, so that's, like, I don't know if you want to put your well, I, hat on, but I, I think there's some world economic forum controlled demolition, one world, new world order fucking forces trying to, to push us in a, in a global communist system. Yeah. I, I, said it. <laughs> I, I think, um, and maybe I'm just a little bit more myopic about the elites. Um, I, I think that in, in some case we're dealing with a little bit of, of maybe ex post facto ex post facto rationalization of just really stupid things that the elites are doing because they're not in fact intellectually elite. Yeah. By the razor. It's over malice. Yeah. It's, it's, and they're, and they're, but it's both right. It's, it's, it's malignant stupidity. It's, it's like, it, it's, it's malign midwit behavior. Right. And, ah, and so to the, yeah. 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 Malign midwit, man. It's like, we're, we're a bunch of, we're being led by, I mean, we're being led by the top of the bell curve. Like I'll say it. Um, there, there are, I, I think, I think one of my, I mean, I'll, you know, I feel like, uh, you know, McMurray and, and Letterkenny, like I'll say it to his face. Um, but probably, probably my favorite meme template on earth is the midwit template where you've got the bell curve and then you've got like the brain dead drooling guy that says a thing. And then you've got like the freaking neck beard that's trying to make it this really complex thing. And then you've got like the, the wise Jedi at the other end of the bell curve who, you know, is, is saying the same thing as the stupid guy. Yeah. And, and the reason I, the reason I love that is is because we we as a society are living at the top of the bell curve right now. We got a bunch of 100 to 115 IQ people who are put in positions where really stupid people or really smart people, truly smart people, uh, would make better decisions because they're not going to be, you know, if they're not governed by malice, if they're not governed by a desire for control. And so when you've got midwit intellects operating from a real desire for need and for control, I think you're in the situation we're in now where they're, they were kind of too dumb in a lot of, a lot of them, at least maybe there's some real geniuses and, and architects in there, but a lot of them are just like, in my view, kind of dumb. 
they don't they don't really they're like cavemen playing with 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 modern firearms and so to the extent that a few of them can kind of grasp what they're dealing with right you're gonna have a whole lot of them that are just creating a lot of negative output and pain and harm for other people because they're 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 playing you know they're they're we're, we're primitive in a lot of ways we are emotionally and mentally primitive creatures playing with space age tools and monetary yeah. policy in my view supply chain policy are very much space age tools to a caveman in a lot of ways yeah yeah and a lot of them don't have any real world experience they just came up through mckinsey or their career politicians and uh, they they read in a textbook the perfect way to run a business and run an economy they think that which was written by someone who probably never themselves actually ran a business yeah exactly. um, it's one of my favorite things to do is just to bag on um life lifelong elites who've never actually lived in the real world in in my view nobody should be president who's never starved right and right. I, don't, I don't care whether that's Trump or Biden or anybody else. If, if you've never been hungry, if you've never tasted desperate at some point in your life, if you've never had to innovate your way out of an existential crisis, you damn sure shouldn't be running a country. You shouldn't yeah. be running an economy. You shouldn't be running the military. Well, I can't even get into the whole conversation. Like, is the democracy in its current form in America even scalable? Like, I think I'm pro balkanization back to like that was the silver lining of, of COVID for me is this reassertion of states' rights. Like, I think we need to get back to a constitutional republic built on autonomous states making their own decisions. Like, I think the federal. That's, I mean, that's what we were envisioned as. I mean, we're, we're not a democracy. We are a, a, a constitutional republic with, federal, with federalist uh, connective tissue, as it were. And the, the nation was designed from the outset, constitutionally, we were designed to have a self-contained, like we had a, a governing mechanism built into the constitution that would have prevented these catastrophic failure cascades in the first place. And the first real time that was challenged was in, you know, was in the, the um, what do they call it, the nullification crisis or whatever, where states and, you know, states and the federal government were, were instituting tariffs on one another and, and all of that. I, I, in a lot of ways, I think that's a mechanism we should have just let play out and resolve itself and, and let the adults operating at a smaller scale figure it out by and amongst each other. And we fought, we fought a whole ass war for states' rights to exist. We fought a whole ass war over how much states' rights would continue to exist. And we didn't square those circles very well. But the Constitution itself, as envisioned, had a, had a delimiting mechanism in it that would never let the system get so complex and so big that the whole house of cards falls apart in the way we're seeing it fall apart. Retreating to, and, and they kind of do it, and it drives me insane. And whatever, I'll get canceled by this for both left and right, but I don't, I don't give a shit. Um, so I'll just say it, the, the extreme affection of, of broadly the left and the, in the U.S., right? Everybody thinks left and right, but broadly the left in the U.S. has more collectivist leanings with some real authoritarian impulse problems, right? On broadly on the right, not this audience, right? Like, like, yeah, the bit, the big, the Bitcoin crowd is like largely autarkic or even anarchic, you know, uh, anarcho-capitalist in nature, and and I'm I'm totally down with that, or at least large parts of it. But but as an economic model and a political model, a large part of the right in the U.S. is either co-opted by this idea, like like this Main Street capitalism, Chamber of Commerce crap, 
which is why we have what we have today, this sort of neoconservative view of the world. Um, but then there, there is an ascendant movement, this, this traditionalism on the right, which pretends to give lip service to the Constitution, but really doesn't. I think the, the, the natural output of a traditionalist model, and I say traditionalism, capital T, sort of in the, the kind of the, the model of like what Alexander Dugan's got going or uh, this kind of weird hybrid of, of like, you know, Evola and, and some of the other philosophers that were, you know, that were very fascistic in nature. The desire for a strongman monarchy with some small like limitations constitutionally, but but generally a beneficent strongman, you know, appeal. You, you've got all these things happening, and, and none of them are the way, right? Like if you like if you want to get back to like Mandalorian, this is the way. the The way was given to us two hundred and fifty freaking years ago. It was served up on a silver platter. And it was like here you guys go. Like this is this is the best thing ever, and as Ben Franklin said, you know, a republic, ma'am, if you can keep it, uh, we've got that. We don't need to rewrite the playbook. All we need to do is just update it. You, you know, like to the extent that we use modern technology, maybe ways they couldn't have conceived that. So I'm all, I'm all for it. I'm all for it. Uh, yeah, and I think again, I think it all goes back to the money. Like that started degrading once you you bastardized the money, and again, and money is the ultimate private property once you start uh, bastardizing that via taxation and confiscation and granular control over how you can use your money that's when you have the the dissolution of of the constitution to some extent right and um i think we can get back to i think bitcoin gets us closer to that. like i said bitcoin uh is literally code it is law it is a form of law the law the consensus of the law of the Bitcoin network is a law that protects and extends private property rights in the digital age, which hopefully can be restorative for for the U.S. Republic, not only the U.S. Republic, but it, it'll that's actually truly bringing freedom abroad. That's how you that's how you uh, that's how you bring freedom to the masses of the world is, is by giving them a money that respects their their private property rights. And I think every, I think I think people forget that that. I mean, well, not in Bitcoin world, but but broadly speaking, a lot of people forget the impact to which John Locke himself was um, formative. A, a, probably seventy percent of what we've got in the Declaration of Independence, and then what became that, because Locke was really talking about. Locke was really just dealing with an update to the to the ideas that were first sort of promulgated in the Magna Carta, and then Locke came along five hundred years later and was talking about those same things, but in a way that made sense to the context of the, of the, the beginning of that Westphalian era, what we, what we saw in the 15 and 1600s. And so a lot came along talking about those and had a huge impact on the 18th century minds that, that would become the founding fathers and as well as their philosophical forebears. And so you take all of that and Locke's formulation of natural rights, which I subscribe to, but as well as the one we ended up with in the declaration of independence was life liberty, property, private property. The first three natural rights of man, life, liberty, property, the ability to individually own a thing and be the sovereign over whatever you own and reinforce that. And, and I think maybe that was too like constructivist or something for the founding fathers. They changed it to life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness, but they were very much operating on the frame of, if you look at the progression of thought that gets you from life, liberty, and property to life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness, the, the fundamental recognition is, is that the ability of humans to own their own shit and to engage in commerce with one another 
under terms that they set within the framework of that. And that's why, and that's why like the, the concept of NFTs or whatever we sort of end up with that comes out of that wild west iterative process that's happening right now. It's awesome that someone on Twitter can make and create really cool art uh, and, and then, and then mint it, post it somewhere and get paid for it completely without government interference. But it's also awesome that we're playing with these ideas of how do we take natural gas and convert it into power sources to do Bitcoin mining and, and all of that. Because I, I, and I agree with you that Bitcoin is not perfect, but it gets us closer to perfect or to an ideal state. It's closer than anything else I think we have in the world. It's got a lot of challenges. It's got a lot of real, real politic type things that, that I think have to be addressed and worked through. Um, but it's going to take, it, it's going to take people like me who don't know jack squat about how it all works. The technology of, of Bitcoin and all of that. I have like a very loose construct of how it works, but the extent to which you can get people like me on board with it, who ideologically and practically speaking can at least kind of grok the general thrust of the whole thing and to say, how do we convert this notional thing that makes no sense to mainstream? Because Bitcoin is a travesty. It's, it's going to take time. Or not travesty, but it's like, a, it's like a vague, magical thing to the average person right now. Yeah. But the second you can convert them to this mental model of I pay my rent, I, I can, I have the option to pay my rent, to make my car payment, to purchase gas, to buy things at the grocery store, or to go to, to Joel's farm and transact with him in a way completely free of government interference on purchasing, processing, and taking delivery of a side of beef to my house. The closer we can get to that, with that mental model, that optionality to transact it outside of dollars and, and U.S. government contractual law that's been built basically to serve the interests of the corporatocracy, I'm up on my soapbox. Thank God I'm not drunk right now. It'd be way weirder. Oh, I love it. Uh, <laughs> but, but the extent to which you can take what I do, which is very pragmatic, very real world, very, very cold blooded, right? And start to convert the mentality of people like me into how do we convert ones and zeros into full bellies and lights on at night and television programming that we can watch as a family. Get that middle step, right? A to B. If A is Bitcoin, maximum individual sovereignty, things like that, and, and B is people sitting on their couches fat and happy because they were able to buy some shit with Bitcoin, that dash, that, that got the guys like me, and there's millions of us in the world, you know, I'm not special or unique or anything like that. I just have kind of a unique way of presenting commonly known information within my community to people and help them understand it. But the extent to which you can filter a to B and, and that dash in the middle of A and B through the minds of millions of people and convert it to action and physical goods and physical fulfillment of Maslow's hierarchy. Like that's, that's the magic. We're closer now than we were a year ago without the pandemic. I, I don't think we ever get there. I, I really don't. Or I think it would have taken so long that it's possible the juggernaut would have been able to crush it or, or co-opt it in some way. But I think the pandemic has inverted people's mental models and amplified their fear of supply chain failure to such a point they're willing to consider anything to know that their family is going to be able to eat tomorrow and in 10 years. And, and I, I, I just, I feel that that, I feel that that's coming and I feel it's inevitable to a certain point and that the two great conflicts that are going to define the next generation is the bifurcation of the Westphalian order into, and, and really the collapse of it into a China led sphere of influence and into a U.S. sort of Anglosphere uh, sphere of influence that traces its legacy 
I do think at some level you're eventually going to see the U.S. and the U.K. and others get away from some of these really idiotic, um, hyper-managed economy ideas we have and get back to saying, you know what, we, we are the ideological and philosophical construct, France, Scotland, England, uh, Germany a little bit, but, but for the most part, it was Western Europe and the Anglosphere that iterated and led the way on natural rights of man, individual sovereignty, those sorts of things, which is really an anomaly in human history. It's always kill or be killed, rule or be ruled, right? Mm-hmm. The enlightenment happens and all of a sudden we have this mental model of I have the same inherent value as a human being as the king. And he can go die in a fire if he thinks he can tell me what to do. Right. And so that that bit of that V for, you know, that V for vendetta, that, that Guy Fox mentality. Right. You know, remember the 6th of November, um, the. Maybe it's 5th of November. Hell, I don't know. It's Hugo Weaving said it, though, so it must be true. Um, Six. Remember, remember six, the fifth or no? six. Right, now six, I got to look it up. I don't know. I don't know. I, I'll, I'll put a guy, you know, I'll do a podcast on the six and I'll put like a guy Fox mask in the background. See if anyone, can, you know, pick it out. But um, that, but that mentality I think is, is, is almost unique yes. to the Anglosphere. Is it fifth? fifth? All right. Good. good. I'd have been, I'd have, I look like a weirdo celebrating it a day late. What an idiot. Um, but that really is an Anglosphere idea. And so what you've got is this tension of ideological and political and economic models that's going to happen. Authoritarianism led by China and, and everybody lined up under them. Uh, a movement, I think, or at least a very large influence, probably starting in the autarkic, anarchic kind of Bitcoin mentality that, that exists at some level on the ideological spectrum is going gonna, is gonna to end up having a governing and shaping effect within the Anglosphere. And, and there, I think there will be a bit of a renewal or a revival of that natural right spirit, um, which is going to lead to the micro thing of a trend over the next five, 10, 15, 25 years towards build out of decentralized financial systems, decentralized commercial systems and decentralized supply chains underpinning both of those things that allows an individual to, to have more optionality than they've probably had in a century or two of how they live their life and how they fulfill their needs their way according to their own rights as a human being. And I got to tell you, man, I love the United States. Not, I'm not jingoistic. I mean, yeah, I'm red, white, and blue. And I got a giant bourbon. By the way, that flag's made out of bourbon barrels awesome. uh, by, by an army veteran in, in Louisville. And uh, I don't know. I don't make anything from it, but I'll shout it out. Uh, where's my patch? Cruise Customs. Cruise Customs. If he's still in business, buy a bourbon barrel flag from him. It's like the best hundred bucks you'll ever spend. It's heavy as shit. It's mounted into the, the cement wall behind me because I can't even hang it. But uh, it's it's um like to the extent that I should be able to buy that in Bitcoin or dollars and have that optionality. Like that's the way, right? Like that's how we get to it. If I want to go buy a side of beef from, from Joel, and have it processed and exactly the way I want and shipped to me to be stored in my freezer. That's great. That's the bogey. That's the goal. That's natural rights of man is not me being told that I can't do certain things that doesn't harm anybody. And so that's where I depart with libertarianism in a lot of ways, but that's where I can really line up behind the libertarian idea of individual rights for individual people. Um, because I think that's what America is. I think that's what we were intended to be. It's why I love our constitution. It's why I think it's the most perfect political document ever created. 
and probably ever will be because it's the first to really codify at a certain level. It, 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 the Magna Carta recognized that the king has limits over the individual, right? The Constitution is the first document to ever say there's no such thing as kings. There's no masters of the universe telling me how to live my life. We have this laboratories of innovation at the state level. And if I don't like it, I have the ability to participate in a different state that maybe is trying things a little bit differently. And then the conflict and the resolution of those ideas between and amongst the states and even within communities within the states is how we create a more perfect union at a smaller level, but do so in a way that also maximizes the success and freedom of the nation collectively. How do we get to that point? Oh, my son's coming to visit. You coming to say hi, Tristan? <laughs> hey, buddy. The viewers won't get to see how cute this kid is, but he is freaking adorable. Come here, bud. <laughs> what are you doing? Are you looking for snacks? I'll tell you what, Marty, you're, uh, your kid's falling through doors. My kid's like <laughs> in, invading invading the pantry outside my office here in the basement. So this is, Yeah, this uh, is a brand new house. This is day two in the house for, for my son. And uh, he just he just discovered the side door and the, the steep. Found it. <laughs> I found it. It's like, uh, you know what? He's never going to forget that door's there as long as he lives there. <laughs> no, but I, um, I, I agree. Anyway, that. That's my soapbox. We're on that path. I think we're going to get there. I think Bitcoin's going to be a driving force to get us there. It's happening slowly but surely. That's what I tell everybody. It's like, oh, I want all this out of the box. I want, I want all this immediately. It's not going to come immediately. It takes hard work. It takes people writing code, people implementing mining infrastructure on the well pad, people building apps that, that leverage the code that, that makes Bitcoin work. But you said Magna Carta, Declaration of Independence, or the Constitution, or the Bill of Rights, uh, I think the Bitcoin white paper will be right up there with with those documents in human history because again, it codifies that there's no trusted third parties anymore in the realm of of, of digital e-cash. It's uh, it's it's the next step we needed to take humanity to the next level and drive us away from this dystopian future that that we're barreling towards. Um, I I'm think we. I I I I am very like you i'm very pessimistic in my newsletters uh, not that i'm pes not that you're pessimistic but there's a lot of times where i'm, oh, I'm highly pessimistic in some ways i mean let's be real like I've, I've made pretty clear my repeatedly and openly my view of the elites as you know being midwits at the wheel um but at the same time man i just i i can't i will not and i cannot bring myself to despair too hard or too far because human history is absolutely chock-a-block full of humans finding ways against all odds to pull ourselves back from the brink of stupid destruction yeah. right it's uh we we have we have this incredible ability to just you know i, I put it in one of my newsletters the one about 9 11 the long defeat we have this remarkable ability as humans to just completely burn the fields of our civilization down right um, and, and that's a negative thing in one way, like, you know, burning the crops and things like that. But, but that's also in the regenerative agriculture guys understand the importance of slash and burn to regenerative ag cycles is that's the fastest and most efficacious way to, uh, release the nutrients that are trapped in the stalks and the residue of the crops and get it back into the soil. Um, slash and burn was the best way we had actually to achieve, uh, soil renewal and regeneration for centuries until we came up with synthetic fertilizers and chemicals. So we had, hey, buddy, can you have dessert? 
sure you can have dessert. I don't know. Marty, did he even eat dinner, man? I don't know. I didn't see. I didn't see it. Uh, <laughs> I didn't see it. Well, we'll just assume he did. Um, it'll avoid a fight later. Um, but, you know, so if, if you look at it from that perspective, it's like, wow, it's, it's negative. It's fire. It's scary. It's dark. It's all these terrible, it's ash and soot in the atmosphere. And then people like you and I and, and millions and millions of others, we look at it and go, no, 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 we're, we're burning the fields of our civilization because we're laying the groundwork for the cycles of renewal to happen as they always have in the past. And, and I think they always will. I don't, I don't think we'll ever face a day unless the book of revelations is correct. Um, I don't think we'll ever face a day where we're just like talking about an output of total destruction. Of humanity. I think every fourth turning always leads into a first. And if we're in a fourth turning now, I don't really give a shit because it's some, because I'm not going to be scared of things I can't change. I'm only going to do what I can to, to fight that and, and to help others do the same. And, Eventually we find ourselves, you know, having sitting under trees that we planted 50 years ago and we thought we'd never sit under, but we figured it out. And man, I just, you know, I'm, I'm totally here for that. So yeah, as much of a perma bear as I seem like I can be talking about gray zone warfare and China and freaking sterilization of minorities that's happening in that country and all the other terrible things that happen. <laughs> Not to laugh world. at the Uyghur uh, sterilization but it, it is but it's it's horrible things and it's really hard to look at that and go man how is there a thread through the thorns on any of this how how is there ever going to be a dawn because it's pretty freaking bleak right now and dark but we know jamie diamond we'll always back jamie around. diamond says hey don't think about it sometimes you just got to put up with the uh, the sterilization of muslim minorities <laughs> If if I could do one thing, yeah, you can have a popsicle, but I'm just giving I'm just giving away treats and sugar at this point. It's fine. I'm gonna have totally pay that price in about 30 minutes when they're all wound up. We'll go to bed. But um, you know, we the, the 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 thing I hope the most for is that to whatever extent collapse is coming, is that the collapse is likely to hurt the elites once it arrives, almost as much or more even. Then it hurts the average person. And man, I'm, dude, I am so freaking hopeful for that. <laughs> I, think, so I think we're in the middle of it. I think it's happening. I think more and more people are, are realizing that the emperor wears no clothes. It's, uh, it's happening. Um, again, I, I, like you, I write pessimistically, but I'm very optimistic. Just seeing what's going on on the front lines, particularly the Bitcoin space. And then I'd say the success of your podcast and, and the others in this community, it's, it, it wouldn't be possible without a spirit, an underlying spirit of hope, recognition of reality, rational recognition of reality, but also an irrational belief that at some point we can bend the arc of history toward back towards, you know, individual sovereignty. Yeah. So I, I, I do, I do think we'll get there, or at least we will get way closer than we've lived in the last four or five generations. I do as well. And I think that's a great note to end on. You need to go spend time with your boys I, and i do as well before bedtime it's coming up um keep, keep them in the house man <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah this has been a fascinating conversation i can go i, I think we should do this again at some point in the future yeah, uh, i'm down for that man uh thank you for doing what you do thank you for educating me on the intricacies of the supply chain and, and the freaks ah. out there who are listening to this it's uh it's again i think they ended on like ah it's scary out there but uh like identify the problem i hope Somebody listening to this is is uh, not, if they're not able to implement the solution that you want to put forth, or at least able to to bring it to somebody who may be able to. Well, I'm I'm having a way more professional approach at addressing the problem in my own like my own Substack and 
Um, you know, it's going to be written as a white paper. Um, like I said, nitty gritty, ugly, boring, dirty details that nobody really cares about outside of the people actually have to implement it. Um, but again, I, I'd rather, I'd rather fail spectacularly, but learn something and fail forward fast and at least begin addressing the problem and take that hit to my ego. <laughs> People think I'm an idiot who failed because I don't really care because if I fail, but someone else gets, you know, takes the germ of a plan of any plan towards doing any of these really good and amazing things that can help people. Um, it's okay to be the first to fail, right? It's okay to be, because eventually someone's not going to fail. That iterative process is, is, has an exponential factor and, and, but we got to start somewhere, man. So yeah, now I'm going to professionally tie it all together and, and, uh, get it released and, and hopefully somebody listens or, you know, my, my real hope is that somebody comes up with something better than I have and we implement that instead. Well, I'll be looking out for, for that white paper and I'll be sharing it <laughs> with uh, all my friends in the logistics world, which I do have a few because um, I think yeah, we need to figure something out and the assholes in control, quote unquote, in control. They're not going not gonna to be able to fix it. So it's going to take people like yourself to actually put these ideas out there and, and try to have private enterprise implement them to, to actually get something going. We can't wait. The infrastructure bill, we're just going to print three and a half trillion dollars. going to fix everything. We're going to build it. It's going to magically fall out of the sky. It's, 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 it's magical money supply. It, it is so beautiful that we can just make that money printer, uh, just keep churning stuff out without any consequences to the economy or our own lives. It's all paid for. It's all paid for. It's, it's, it's all paid for. It's all paid for. Uh, yeah. All, you know, inflation is infrastructure, right? <laughs> it is. It is. <laughs> Well, where where can we find your Substack? Your man underscore integrated on Twitter, correct? Man underscore integrated, um, which is a total lie. I'm probably the most disintegrated human being in in so many ways. But I have like a couple mental models and tricks that make me sound really smart. Uh, but yeah, it's man underscore integrated. My screen name is is either Huntsman or usually some variation of it. Uh, my Substack is Fortis Analysis F O R T I S uh, Analysis uh, dot Substack dot com and and that's like a whole movement. Um, I plan, you know, there's already several thousand uh, readers and, and I just set the thing up like a month ago. So it's, uh, it, it's pretty, it, it's pretty amazing the growth and, and uh, you know, I want to use whatever little bit of clout moment we have in, in the sun in this day and age to, you know, pursue the advancement of humans and, and not make it, not make us subjugated to the whims of, of tyrants or our own stupidity. So, yeah. You're either perfectly still or you froze. <laughs>